Hey, I want to let you know that uh, on Sunday evening, October 19th, we're going to have a baptism service here at the Vineyard, and that'll be uh, a special evening service just designed to uh, bring, offer baptism to those of you who are ready to be baptized. And uh, that'll be Sunday night, October 19th at 6 o'clock. It'll be a time of worship. It'll be a time of baptism celebration for uh, any of you who are ready to be baptized. And I would love to have the privilege of being the one to baptize you. Um, Why should you be baptized? It's part of the journey. It's really just that simple. It's part of the journey. If you read through the Bible, you'll see that baptism is an important step in our faith as we walk with the Lord. That becomes a point in our life where we realize that we need Jesus, yes? And part of that is uh, asking Christ into our life. But it's also part of that is following him in, uh, in, in water baptism. And so uh, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to consider coming to uh, one or both of the uh, Get Ready sessions, which are on Tuesday nights, October 7th and October the 14th at 7 o'clock here. That's Tuesday night, so you'll have to work hard to remember it. But uh, these are uh, two important meetings that you need to be in in order to be ready to be baptized. In the first meeting, I talk about what baptism is and who should be baptized. And some of you are saying, uh, should I be baptized? Well, We offer baptism to everybody who's 12 and over who has come to the place of knowing Christ as their Savior. Some people sometimes ask the question, I was baptized once before, but I really wasn't into it. It didn't mean anything to me. Should I be re-baptized? Sometimes people say, you know, I was baptized as an infant. Did that count? And uh, if you come to that meeting, we'll deal with those questions, and I'll be there to talk with you personally if you want afterwards about your particular situation so that we can uh, make a good decision with you about whether you ought to be baptized again. But uh, that's what it's going to be. It's October the 19th. Be sure to come to that service, whether you're being baptized or know someone who's being baptized, because that's for the church to witness, and that's for the church to celebrate in. Um, So there you go. I'd love to be the one to, to bring baptism to you. Well, I've always believed that the most important thing that I can do for the church is to pray. I think those of you who know me know that's true. I think the most important thing that I can do as the pastor of this church is to pray. It's always been an important part of my DNA as a believer, but as, you know, functioning as a pastor, I just don't, there's just nothing I can do that's more important, because I don't know what to do next unless I pray. I mean, we could dream up all kinds of plans and schemes for ourselves that might look good, but the best things come from prayer. And of course I do pray, uh, pray for you. From time to time I find it very helpful to devote a stretch of time, just some space of time, uninterrupted as possible, to seeking the Lord's face and hearing his voice on, on some, some set of specific issues. So, as I've mentioned before, for the next two weeks, Beginning this afternoon, right after the congregational meeting is concluded, Karen and I, we are going to retreat into a time of prayer. We're, going to, we're planning two weeks that we're just going to be in a time of prayer and uh, disconnected, if you will, from the church so that we can really focus on, on these things. We're asking one question in prayer, and the one question is, what do you want, Lord? What do you want? 
what do you want? He's always been very faithful to answer this question to us before. What do you want? We want this to be his church. We don't want this to be the amalgamation of everybody's best ideas. Those are important, but we want it to be his church. And we want that to be reflected in everything that we do. So over the course of the past month or so, I've developed 12 specific questions that come under the heading of, What do you want, Lord? And these questions range from, What do you want from me in terms of the, the direction in my teaching and preaching ministry here? All the way to, What do you want for our, our youth ministry here? So I have 12 vital questions. Each of these vital questions, if you total them up, have 54 subpoints. So if you do the math, we're going to be spending two weeks asking 67 questions. I showed these uh, questions to the elders, and one of our elders said, you know, I don't think you're going to get this done in two weeks. <laughs> but we're going to give it our best, and of course we're not going to stop praying when the two weeks are over. We just think that by having this time of dedicated prayer, we can really get where we want, where we need to go as a church. And, uh, but two things I want you to know before, before we head into this time of prayer is there is absolutely nothing wrong. All right? People are inclined to think, oh, they're going to pray. Something's up. Something bad is happening, right? Why else would you pray? Something terrible must be happening. They're leaving. They're going somewhere else. I just know it. Look, I've been here 21 years. Karen and I are the senior members of this church, and we're not likely to give that position up easily, right? Good heavens. 59 years old, you think I want to start again? There's nothing wrong. We just want a dedicated time, a dedicated time to inquire of the Lord. And the second thing you must know is that during these two weeks, Karen and I will both be depending on your prayers, to uphold us during this time. And pray. Pray that distractions flee. Pray that our focus is on the Lord. Is that a deal? That's good. Speaking of prayer this morning, I have a quiz for you. True or false, God answers every prayer that we pray. True or false? That is true. True or false, We can get whatever we want, whenever we want it, from God through prayer. Are you sure that's false? But didn't Jesus say, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open for whoever asks, receives, and whoever seeks, finds, and whoever knocks the door. Did Jesus not say those words? But you're saying that doesn't mean that we can always get whatever we want, whenever we want it, from God by prayer? Does it feel like a disconnect there? Does it create a problem? Well, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to this place where Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks finds, and him who knocks the door will be opened. And then he said, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
I find the timing of this passage so interesting. On the very day that Karen and I are heading off to pray for two weeks, we just happened to fall on this passage. As we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, it's been fascinating to me to see how each week, and I haven't planned this out, like, and this week we'll do this, and this week we'll do that. But that each week, each passage, as we've gone through it sequentially, has had this direct connection to something that's going on in the fellowship. It's been fascinating. And here we are again. Well, doesn't this say that we can get whatever we want whenever we want it? Isn't that what the words say? It doesn't, that's not what the words say, Dennis? You seem so sure of yourself. Isn't that what it says? Ask, and you'll receive. Really, it's really not that difficult to answer the question from Scripture. It's just that a lot of us might not like the answer. And the answer is readily discovered when we revisit that favorite place of Bible study. Say it. Context. Context. I think most American Christians know a lot of the words of the Bible. I think we know a lot of the words. That's not the problem. But I fear that much of it is virtually useless because in my observation, it seems as though very few Christians seem to trouble themselves to do the work of determining what those words actually mean. And we've heard them over and over and over again so many times that we think we know what they mean. But a major error that we make as American Christians is we interpret the Bible backwards rather than forwards. We take our our context, our life setting, the details of our lives, and we look at the words of Scripture and and we try to make it mean what it would mean if those words were spoken directly to us in our context. But I think that's a problem. The most fundamental question that has to be asked in order to understand words that were spoken at any time when we were not present is this thing called context. How many of you have been in a situation where you heard that someone said this or that, and you went, well, my goodness. And you drew a conclusion as to what that meant from your own space, rather than try to reconstruct the context into which those words were spoken. Anybody besides me? How many of you have allowed your feelings to be hurt deeply because of the words that someone said that you then interpreted through your context? Well, that was right fire right to the center of my heart. When if you go back and reconstruct the context, they might not even have been thinking about you. Anybody? This is why context is so important. It's both presumptuous and useless to say that we know what any set of words mean if either we were not present when they were spoken 
or we take no trouble to understand the actual circumstances surrounding the words that were spoken. Does that make sense? And this is the thing that we call context, and it's what surrounds every passage of the Bible. And there are several factors that contribute to this thing called context. You could start with the time frame. Okay, so none of these words were written or spoken less than 2,000 years ago. Has anything changed in the past 2,000 years? Let's just consider the fact that English wasn't even a language when these words were spoken. What? The Bible wasn't written in American? (laughs) And let's talk about how words have changed. The meanings of words have changed in our lifetime. And some of the words that meant this when we were kids don't mean that now. Just in, a, in, in the space of our lifetime. Let's stretch that out over 2,000 years. So if we're going to get what the words mean, we have to visit the time frame. What about any specific cultural situation that may have been happening? How many of you got to that part in Corinthians where Paul says that women, women are forbidden to speak in the church? I know all you can do is raise your hand. You can't talk, can you? Excuse me? Marilyn, you sit in the front row and violate the very words of the Bible. Yeah, what do you mean, yes? And we, tr- we don't trouble ourselves to consider the cultural context of Corinthians, of the people of Corinth, which I could elaborate for you, and a specific word was spoken to a specific woman because of the trouble that were being caused. Not that women would ever cause trouble in a church today, but... Respect you, Rich. Back up. All right. right. In this case, as we look at these words from Jesus, I think the great cultural question or contextual question we have to ask is to whom was Jesus actually speaking these words? Can that make a difference? Words spoken to this person or that person could have a different meaning, couldn't they? Let's do a little exercise. I want you to take this phrase. Boy, if you don't back off, you and I are going to have to tangle. (laughs) Why is that so funny? Sound like a hillbilly. I am a hillbilly. I thought everybody knew that. Boy, if you don't back off, you and I are going to have to tangle. Those are the words. Now, let's, let's, let's consider some different audiences and see how that's affected. It's your nine-year-old son who's complaining about why he shouldn't have to clean up his room. I know that never happens, right? On and on and on. I did, I won't. Boy, if you don't back off, you and I are going to have to tangle. I know parents don't raise their kids that way these days in threatening ways. It's, honey... Do you need a timeout? You know, the timeout of today, when I was being raised, was a knockout. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying, boy, times have changed, have they not? Man. So you got a nine-year-old mouthing off or something like that. Okay, let's change this. The word is still the same. Boy, 
If you don't back off, you and I are going to have to tangle. You're sitting across the table from your boss during your annual performance review. <laughs> They're asking for certain improvements, saying, you think you can do better this year? Boy, if you don't back... Now, that's a different mess. That's a different deal, isn't it? I have one more for you. You're talking to the officer who just pulled you over for speeding. <laughs> Boy, if you don't back off, you and I are going to have to tangle. That's not good, is it? Same exact words spoken to three different people mean three different things. Exact same words, very different messages. To understand the true meaning, you really have to know Who's being spoken to? Exactly the same principle in understanding the Bible. To whom was Jesus speaking when he said, Ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will open. He was speaking to the poor to begin with. Jesus was speaking to the poor. He had a crowd of disciples and a crowd around the disciples, Sermon on the Mount, and he was speaking to the poor because these were Jesus' favorite people. These were Jesus' favorite people. The poor, the marginalized. These were Jesus' favorite people. He consistently received criticism for what? For always going to the wrong people. You see, to be a rabbi in that day meant to be to go to the right people. And it meant to be an elite person yourself. Rabbis were considered to be elite. Rabbis were considered to be Uh, holy men, untouchable men in that way. And Jesus said, come. He said, come around me. And Jesus went to the poor. He went to the homes of the sinners, and he was constantly criticized for this. And um, Jesus said to these these other guys who were functioning in this other way, he said, you know, you guys, you you tithe to the last mint leaf. You, You observe every, he called it, jot and tittle of the law. But he said, but you don't take care of your own families. You don't take care of the people who need something. What's wrong with you? Jesus was talking to the poor, and he loved the poor, and the poor loved him. And to the poor, to the people who wondered about their next meal, he said, ask, and you'll receive. He said, are you hungry? Ask God for food. The Bible says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. Ask, and God will feed you. Jesus was also speaking to disciples who were following him with reckless abandon. And by that, they had left everything. They didn't have anything. They had left their nets. They had left their tax collecting booths. They had left their families. They had left everything to follow Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the midst of that, there had to be questions. Man, what's going on here? Is this even going to work? Are we even going to have food? And to them, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find it. Knock, and the door will be open. In the greater context of this passage, Jesus was talking to people who would have never dared to think of God as their Heavenly Father. I mean, this would have been so far out of their way of thinking, to think of God as their Heavenly Father. And Jesus said, after he said, ask, seek, and knock, what did he say? 
Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? He said, you then, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And Jesus here is characterizing the core of the relationship. This is the relationship that Jesus was uh, initiating with all people in the incarnation. By coming to earth as God in the flesh, he was making an enormous paradigm shift. And he was fulfilling scriptures from the Old Testament that basically said in the book of Joel, you know, it used to be this way, that God poured out his spirit here and there on those he chose, and everybody else had to live vicariously through them. But he said in these days... God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so the change was that, God, that Jesus was offering the fatherhood of God to these people. And that would have been a radical, revolutionary. How could God be my father? And so this is, that's what this passage is about. It's about our relationship with God as our father. And you make no mistake You know, when we're encouraged by these prosperity teachers who say, go to God, if you need some more money, go to God, just go to God. If you need a new car, go to God. If you need a new house, go to God. If you need a new carpet, go to God. Go to God and ask Him. And I think they're violating the very core of the relationship that's being offered because God is not a senile grandfather with too much money to spend. You know, go and trick him. And they'll give you these lists of scriptures that you can use, that you hold up as though you're holding it against God. You you owe me this because you said, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory, and I need new carpet. Gotcha, didn't I? And the senile old grandfather God goes, oh, you write him a chick. And God is not a slot machine. You know, you keep praying and praying and praying and praying, and then you're going to hit. We hit it this week, honey. He's your father. This would have been a revolutionary idea. He's your father. And these are the people to whom he's speaking. He's introducing a radical concept. You can ask for your food. You can seek what you need. You can knock on his door because he's your father. And then I think the fourth uh, bit of context here that we should notice is that Jesus was speaking to a crowd who by now had been brought to their knees. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a continuous flow. It's not just a collection of individual sayings strung together. And by now, if people had been listening, they knew something about themselves. They knew that they were thieving, adulterous murderers. Yeah? Where were they? They were brought to their knees. The first two essentials of your salvation, beloved, are this. We must become fully conscious of our need. We must become fully conscious of our need. We must become fully persuaded that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that no matter how hard we try, 
We can't change that. We have fallen short of God's glory by our sin. We must become fully conscious of our need, and that's where they were. But the second reality of our salvation is we must become fully dependent on Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of our lives, depending on nothing else but his shed blood on the cross. Nothing else. And to these people who had been brought to their knees, going, oh, what am I supposed to do? I'm a thieving, adulterous murderer. He said, ask. Go ahead and ask. These people who were so aware of their need of God's grace, he said, go ahead and ask. Go ahead and ask for God's forgiveness. Go ahead and seek him. In fact, knock on his door. But I, I think the point that I want to make is that the last thing on these people's minds would have been whether they were going to get new carpet out of following Jesus. Do you, are you, you see what I'm saying? Contextually, the last thing on their minds is how, would have been, how, am I, how will I prosper financially if I follow this Jesus? So to say that we can get whatever we want whenever we want it from God because of this verse would be in, to entirely violate the context. These people would have been stunned. They would have been stunned by the offer Jesus was making, and the offer was the door of God. One of the things that makes this passage so easy for us to misinterpret is because most of us live so far away from this context. So again, we make the mistake of trying to interpret it backwards. I can get whatever I want. I mean, I've got all this. Look at this pile of stuff I already have. This is cool. I can add to the pile. That's an easy mistake to make. But let me ask you, are you poor? No one in here is poor. Well, I don't have as much as him, but you're not poor. Let me ask you this. Are you following Jesus Christ with reckless abandon? Would you put yourself among the twelve? Let me ask you this. Is the thought of God being your heavenly father a revolutionary idea? Probably not. You've been hearing it your whole life. Let me ask you this. Have you been brought to your knees and overcome by an awareness of your own sin? And if the answer to that question is yes, then when Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, the last thing on your mind is, how am I going to get a new car out of this? That's the last thing that would ever enter your mind. Go to your job, work your job, buy your new car, do it. We live in an amazing society. Go do all of that. And be faithful with what God gives you. Enjoy your life. But don't drag scriptures like this into it and miss the real thing that's being offered. When Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, I don't believe at all that he was saying that we can always get whatever we want, whenever we want it. And I'm glad. I'm glad for a couple of reasons. First of all, because not everything we ask for is good. Who among us has never asked God, even begged God, for something that in hindsight we are so glad he didn't give us? Who among us have begged God? And he did. And now you're married to him. 
I can change him, God. I promise. Not everything we ask for is good. And Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give these things to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Luke records Him as saying, we'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. There's the good gift. I think so much of what we pray about reveals where we are in terms of our own maturity. I think back of some of the things I prayed for as a puppy. Oh my goodness. And I think the other reason I'm glad that that's not true is because we're being offered something so much better. He's offering us something so much better. Because I believe that more than anything else, he was talking about a door. He was talking about a door. He's saying, knock on my door. We are being invited to know the love of a perfect father. We are being encouraged to knock on the door of the God of the universe. Are you really going to bring up carpet? Is that really the most important thing on your list? We are being offered the opportunity to pass through that door and actually experience the presence of God. Hello? So how does this connect with the ask, seek, and knock sequence? I think that we are called to ask for forgiveness. The Sermon on the Mount brings us to our knees. We are poor in spirit. We need the grace of God. Ask for forgiveness. To seek His presence in our lives. And to knock and pass through the door into the reality of His amazing presence. I don't think this should ever keep us from asking for the stuff of life. And the Bible says that that stuff matters to God. But I don't think that's what this passage is about. Because what we're being offered really is unlimited access to the grace of God, which is the thing that we desperately need. Let me close with this question. I want you to think about your life. Don't you wonder what's on the other side of that door? Some of you have been, and you know what I'm talking about. There have been times in prayer where I've just been on my face and I've been afraid to look up. I would fear that I saw him. There's stuff on the other side of that door that I could never talk about. And some of you know what I mean. But this door is not for a few, it's for all of us. He said to the crowd, knock, and the door will be open for you. Don't you wonder what's on the other side of the door, men? Women, young people, don't you wonder what's on the other side of the door? The presence of God. The experience of God. How do I, how do I get through the door, Tom? Ask for forgiveness. Seek his presence. And Knock. And stay with it. Stay with it. Let's invite him. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this time. We invite you into this time of worship and encounter with you. These words are useless, Lord, to us unless you come and validate them by your presence. 
We don't want to be a religious people, Lord. We want to be a people filled with your Spirit, filled with the love and joy of the Holy Spirit. And so we invite you, Father, by your profound, powerful presence, we invite you to come and uh, to set your face in our eyes, every one of us, Lord. Give us each a sense of your, your calling, your beckoning on the other side of the door, your heart to experience us in this way. Lord, we know that we'll add nothing to who you are if we pass through that door. You'll still be God whether we go or not. But we know what will be redeemed, filled with your spirit, struck by your love and power fashioned by your hand, lifted from the worries of this life into the pleasures of your presence. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. So I pray for every person in this room, Lord. I pray for them wherever they are in this journey, whether they're asking, seeking, or knocking, Lord, I pray for them on this journey. I pray that you would give them by your powerful Holy Spirit the motivation, the drawing, the beckoning not to give up until they see the light on the other side of that door. Oh God, what a place this would be if we were all people of that light. Father, we invite you now to come. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come. Do what you want in our lives. Name of Jesus. Amen. Can we have some prayer ministry people come up and make yourselves available to, to pray for people who come to you? They'll pray for you about anything. Just come on up as we uh, worship the Lord. And as always here at the vineyard, you're free to respond if you're a person who would really like to just come up and pray up close here. That's, that's really fantastic. You're free to follow the stirring of your heart. Let's stand together, church, and just worship the Lord.